if the coach is not on song, the athletes in the time of crisis, in the middle of a game or when something's happening with the team or when the lead-up doesn't work out as you want to, because campaign right up to Olympics is a long campaign, they're looking to the coach for that strength and the coach won't have it if they're that tired that they're not functioning at their best. So it, it's it's a matter for you know the CEOs that are looking after those people or the, the head coach or whatever it is just to make sure they know their people well enough to see when they're down and say, come on, let's let's have a chat and let's have a rest. Um, otherwise, you know, you, Tokyo coming looming soon um, will not be as successful as people want it to be. Helping CEOs and business leaders discover the energy to perform exceptional brilliance and positively impact the lives of those around them. Be inspired by world leaders and next level gurus. This is the Active CEO Podcast, where the ordinary don't belong. And now your hosts, Craig Johns and Ben Gathercole. On this episode of the Sports People Recruitment Active CEO Podcast, we speak with an impressive leader who has a wealth of industry knowledge and experience in the world of sport management. She has studied a Bachelor of Education in Physical Education and Science from the University of South Australia, graduate diplomas in Sports Science and Sport Management from Deakin University, a Master's of Marketing from Monash University, and has completed a Company Director's course in Governance from the Australian Institute of Company Directors. Our special guest has held roles as Head of Physical Education at Wesley College, Event and Sponsorship Manager, Australian Running Magazine. Marketing Manager at Golf Victoria, Chief Executive Officer at Little Athletics Victoria, Public Affairs and Sponsorship Manager at the Victorian Institute of Sport, Manager of La Trobe University Sport and General Manager of Community and Stakeholder Relations at Basketball Australia. Her love of sport goes beyond management. As a 16-year coach at Sandringham Athletics Club, and has governance experience as a director at AFL Sports Ready Foundation and Shooting Australia, as well as Vice President of Athletics Victoria. I'm pleased to introduce to you a leader who is passionate about supporting the future of women on boards through Change Our Game and improving inclusion and diversity as the CEO of Vic Sport, Lisa Hasker. Lisa, welcome to the show. Thank you for a wonderful introduction. You're welcome and you've had a, a wide variety of experience there across a number of different sports and different areas so I'm looking forward to a great conversation today. Thank you. Being involved in sport is a very rewarding experience. You know, what were your fondest memories of playing sport as a child? Um, I think hanging out with the family and um, getting to play sport outside the classroom with your friends. They were the kind of the things that I remember the most. Um, you know, I remember the first time I joined a, an athletics club, I think I was more interested in the groovy uniform and the spikes than I was <laughs> in the actual athletics or the, the hurdling. I come from a long line of athletics competitors and hurdlers in particular, and it was kind of not really a choice. But I, I, I do remember thinking the uniform was pretty groovy, so I don't think my father would have been too impressed with that. But I very soon... Um, got to understand why he loved the sport and um, shared that love and have kind of stayed in that sport but sport in general uh, for the next 50 odd years so it's it's exciting and as you say it's a very rewarding career. So as a hurdler and obviously you say that kind of athletics runs in the family you know what attracted you to hurdling yourself? 
Um, I think I, I really liked it because, in the first instance, I liked it because my dad did it. So it was kind of, we used to watch him compete when we were kids, um, and that was exciting. And so doing something that he did that we could be connected to and train together was was uh, really appealing. Um, but then I just liked the challenge of it, um, the technicality of it, the challenge of improving, the challenge of running personal bests. Um, that that was what was the great appeal. And and then the, you kind of translated into lifelong friends in the sport and particularly hurdling. So there was a lot of elements that kind of built up my love for that part of athletics in particular. You started your career in education as a physical education teacher. You know, what attracted you to becoming a teacher? Um, I think it was the fact that I had great phys ed teachers when I was a kid and people that I really looked up to um, and that were great role models for me in terms of how they went about it, their health and fitness themselves and the way they treated, you know, the, the students under their care. And so, and the fact that they got to kind of play sport all day, I thought that would be a pretty cool career. So that's that's why I um, headed into that in the first instance. I love that. You know, the influence that you have at such a young age has a powerful impact on your future and it seems like both from your your family side and then obviously with those physical education teachers they really um, sort of molded the your your future for you that's exactly right i just remember thinking that you know it, it looked like a pretty groovy way to spend your days hanging out with kids playing sport getting to wear tracksuits and sporty gear all the time and um you know that that was very appealing and then obviously followed up with study that you know, I enjoyed looking at all different sports and teaching kids was um, really rewarding as the kind of overlay to that. So that was, uh, it, it all bundled into a really fantastic, um, enjoyable package that didn't really feel like work. It's a bit like working in sport. You do work hard, but you don't feel like you're always in a, you know, a job. It, it's something that you would love to do anyway. So it, uh, it makes it very appealing. So for you, what are the key elements of sport that provides the greatest impact on people in their future careers? I think, um, you know, sport, the old cliche of sport teaches people lots of life lessons. You know, you're thrown into a group, you've got challenges, you've got rules, you've got goals, you, you, you've got competitiveness and all those things. You know, you, it, it's interesting when I'm interviewing people um, well, either for my own organisation or helping out with other roles, you know, people always say they're interested in sport and they love sport, but you can kind of tell the people that have been in sport their whole lives and face the challenges and, and work through different um, hurdles along the way. And, you know, it, it's pretty obvious if people have been in that environment and it translates into people that know how to organise themselves and work hard and work with other people. So it's a it's a very good grounding for anyone. It doesn't really matter what sport or what level. It just uh, it just provides a good kind of life education, I think. Talking about teaching lessons or education, if you could change the education system as it currently stands, what would you like to see done differently? Um, I and I say I, I've got a very specific thing. I think as a phys ed teacher and as someone that is involved in helping people be more active more often, that's our, our, our mantra at VicSport, um, pop through phys ed in all primary and secondary schools is a must. Um, you know, I think it, it's it's kind of something that people like to think there's a little bit of activity in schools and a little bit of um, sport, but I think physical education where there's trained teachers teaching people how to master the skills so they can use them later in life. I think that is vital and 
I keep pushing that in every possible way I can through my role at the moment. It'd be really nice to see health, education and sport really, really come together in that space and, and kind of transform it because we know how much benefit there is to proactively looking at health versus reactively looking at health. Very much so. And I just think, I, you know, I just see how much I got from sport, physical education, recreation in terms of capacity and fitness and health and understanding of your body and that translates into every part of your life, active and inactive. And I just think if kids are missing out on that now and they're sitting on their phones and not doing much else, what what are the next generation of adults going to look like? And that, that stresses me out as a, as a trained phys ed teacher. So I'd like to see a lot more activity and learning um, and physical literacy happening in schools. So hopefully we can keep pushing that. I'll just segue a little bit from, from our education discussion there. Some of your early sport management roles were around the marketing and sponsorship space. You know, what changes have had the most significant effects on the sponsorship dollars over the past couple of decades and, and what impact is that having on sports? Um, I think it's it's a lot more competitive, obviously, because there's a lot more players in the market um, that are doing a good job. Um, there's there's obviously the influence of the traditional TV sports that have a lot of um, you know a lot of return on investment in terms of eyeballs. That, that you know, but also the smaller sports are getting a lot more um, savvy with their data in their sport and talking to their competitors and their um, members. And so you know, I think it's. It's changing in that it's not all about just slapping a logo on things, obviously. It, it's a lot more sophisticated than sponsorship was when I started many years ago. Um, there's lots of offerings that a corporate can, can use in a sport um, and lots of different things they can do. And sports are getting a lot more sophisticated in what they've got to offer, um, which is really great to see because it's not, as I said, all about just popping a logo on a jersey and moving on um the sophistication's building from both sides of the equation it's moved away from that logo and that what the chairman likes type mentality um and moving on to things that really get some return for both the sport or recreation activity but also um the sponsor who's putting the money into the activity so in in your opinion do you think the digital media age has hindered or helped sport from a both a promotional perspective and also from a participation point of view? That's a good question. I think there's a bit of both. I think, you know, digital being um, a relatively inexpensive way to promote yourself has been um, a help for sport um, because obviously sport, a lot of sports don't have the money for big formal marketing campaigns. Um, but on the other hand, it's probably created some issues because you know, to do, to have a full digital profile and good databases and all the things you need to, to make intelligent decisions is obviously an expense related to that. Um, so that's a bit of an issue. And also, I think a lot of sports, it's difficult managing athletes on social media and potential PR disasters. And that takes up time for a sport is just trying to run the competitions. And so there's, there's positives and negatives. But I think overall, um, as we manage things a bit better um, and we get we you know use the data better i think it'll be overall will be on the positive side of the ledger rather than the negative your current role is ceo of vic sport and we have listeners from all around the world so can you provide an insight into what your role is and the purpose of vic sport 
Yeah, look, our we are, we are the the peak body, the sport, the the federation. We have state sport organisations, so we're based in Victoria. So our organisations like Baseball Victoria, Swimming Victoria, Athletics Victoria are our members, and our job is to help them um, build capability and capacity in any way we can. So we do a lot of education campaigns, we do a lot of one-on-one support, we do a lot of reviews, we work with government um, to influence and get more money and support into sport at, um, in our state. So our, our, our job really is to um, support our members um, to make their lives easier in running their particular sport. In a nutshell, Vic Sport has, you know, developed a number of very, very impressive initiatives over the past few years around the diversity and inclusion within sport, sport management, and sport governance. Why has, say, an initiative like Change Our Game been so effective? Yeah, well, we we kind of tag team with Change Our Game with um, government and help with board quotas in particular. It's a particular project in that area. I think it's been so effective because simplifying that, particularly board quotas, I'll take that as an example, where the campaign has been to get 40% women on all states women organisation boards, which is quite world-beating in in lots of ways, Um, and a particular focus on women for that part of inclusion, but we also look at inclusion in general. But I think it's been successful because we've simplified it and just helped people one-on-one to make changes at board level to implement that policy um, rather than making it a big extra thing that people have to do. It's just part of um, a hygiene factor around having good governance in your sport. And and sports, you know, in the usual way of sport, have embraced new things, um, jumped on board, and, and, you know, we've had sports going from 44% of sports having 40% women on their boards to 94 in three years. So... It's a great story and led by Bridie O'Donnell in the Victorian government um, and supported by us and VicHealth. And it's just one of those things that when people all work together on, on one thing, um, you can actually achieve some really good things. It's been great. Yeah, I've really noticed in, in the sport industry or on any of the work that I've done is when there is that diversity of people at the table, there's a very different approach to how decisions are made and things are operated than when say it's swung one way or the other so what 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 shifts have you seen in the way in which sports club organizations are now operating following a change in their sport governance diversity look i think you're spot on with your comments it it does you know we've concentrated on women but big sport we concentrate on inclusion and diversity in general and the problem we had with sport in the past is that the the boards weren't representative of the people in the membership. And so you weren't clearly representing, you know, the diversity that was the people playing your sport. And now we're getting, not quite there, but we're getting closer to that. And it means that, as you say, people are making better decisions. People have got checks and balances at board level and questioning each other about how they do things, uh, why they do things, and making sure they're genuinely thinking about um, approaching new people, being inclusive in the sport and ultimately we want more people to play sport but we're not going to have that unless we open up sports to more people Um, and Australia is changing for the better and we've got a lot more diverse groups that we can include into our sport and recreation activities and we need to have people at board level ready to do that and that that change has really been happening which is really great to see. 
So obviously we're seeing a lot around gender diversity and also some inclusive diversity. One area that some sports have done really well at is age diversity as well. So you look at say yep. Surf Life Saving who do really, really good at young leadership programs and developing leadership all the way through. But we're still seeing a number of sports where they're still trying to get that gender diversity right, but they're also their age range and their governance is either at one end of the spectrum or another. And you know, to me, obviously, the way the world is changing so quickly, is the next kind of real push gonna be around ensuring that we've got a lot more young people involved in the sports governance area? I think it is. I think that both young and old, um, and of different, you know, different demographic groups. But I think young people are really important, and particularly bringing young people into being officials and coaches, and then encouraging them to be part of the governance structure as well, um, because a lot of our, particularly our volunteer population, is ageing. Um, and as you know, sport is nothing without our volunteers. We we don't have the professional workforce to run sport as it's presented in Australia. Um, you know, so we need to make sure that we can encourage volunteers to the table and make the environment um, positive for them. And the next group of people we need to make sure are on board are, are young people. And so young people have a lot of options for what they can do in their spare time um, these days, more so than 50 years ago. Um, so that's that's a really big focus for a lot of sports who have that ageing demographic that are hanging out doing all the officialing and coaching. So are we now at a point where we can release the gender quota systems and allow democratic selection um, look after the diversity aspects or do we need to, or what is going to be that trigger to know when to release that? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I don't think we're we're there yet. I think, you know, the quotas have proved that, you know, we need to give people a bit of a nudge to get them to move along and then the next focus for us now is obviously keeping people to quota and making sure that the environments are encouraging so that people stay on boards and governance committees. Um, it'll be very interesting to see when we get to the point where it's just it's just naturally what we do to be totally inclusive in every part of every, every sporting business but I'm not sure we're quite there yet. We've still got a bit of historical um, you know kind of rubbish to jump across I think so we'll get there but maybe not in, in the next couple of years we might need a little bit longer <laughs> yeah well, good things take time they do yes <laughs> what are some of the inclusion initiatives that Fix Sport and its collaborative partners have implemented recently and what have been some of their keys to success as a from a collaborative point of view I think the um the quotas example is a great one with government Vic Sport and Vic Health in the Victorian context, you know, everyone making sure that we're all on the same page and supporting sport in the same way and um, having policy that's exactly the same. I think the other work that we've done with um, with our partners has been around um, inclusion in general of, of different groups, um, including people from called environments, people that are Aboriginal, um, older people coming into sports that aren't traditionally for older people, um, people that have taken a break to have children coming back and trying sports and modifying sports to suit different groups. So the kind of innovation and inclusion, um, you know, focus has helped sports grow their membership into those different groups. And that's still a focus. It's still, we still haven't got some groups 
participating in sport and recreation activities as much as we would like. So that is a constant focus and something that we, we work on pretty much every day. So from a management sort of point of view, in, in Melbourne or in Victoria, there are a number of sport organisations that look after specific areas of sport. So whether that be high performance with Victorian Institute of Sport, whether yep. that be with health or education or specific areas such as office for women in sport, to ensure there's alignment and connection between all those components in sport, what is the glue that's holding that together or does there need to be more glue? Um, look, I think there's always needs to be more glue, but at the moment we, you know, myself, um, people from VIS, people from Vic Health, people from state government and Office of Food and Sport and Sport and Rec Victoria all sit on various um, working groups, committees and informal groups together just to make sure we're all knowing what we're each other's doing, um, not duplicating resources and effort on different topics um, and making sure that we're kind of advocating to government in the same way. So there's some quite formal ways of doing that with, with committees and working groups and advisory panels, but there's also a lot of um, informal ways and that we can always do more and it's really important because otherwise you end up kind of duplicating and jumping across each other and, and kind of wasting the, the limited resources we've got. Talking about partners, VicSport recently announced the Global Wellness Tracking Partnership. You know, this, this sounds quite fascinating to me when we're talking about global wellness. So what is global wellness tracking and how does that really improve health and well-being of those involved in not only sport but also the, the general public? Yeah, look, it's fantastic. Graham, who runs um, GPT, has a fantastic organisation and he links in with Victoria University, who we do a lot of work with as well. And it's about more than fitness testing. It's about wellness testing. So it's not just about how long can you run and how high can you jump. It's about how you're feeling, what are you eating, how much are you sleeping, and getting a handle on that, whether it be from school, boy and school girl level, whether it be from um, representative teams, state teams, Australian teams, day-to-day uh, -day people that are just interested in wellness and making sure that people understand the elements of wellness and physical literacy and improving where they are at the moment and how they can do that. So for us, it's about promoting that to sport and to people that are interested in sport and recreation and supporting him in that kind of push to increase um, physical literacy and wellness in the general population. So um, it's a really interesting one. And as an ex-visitor and um, someone that's done some sports science um, study, I was fascinated by what they do. Um, and, you know, we've, we've talked for a long time about how we could link and how we can promote um, what they do and how sport can link into some of the, the insights and the data that he has um, and, you know, just work on that to basically lift the bar on, on people's wellness and physical literacy and fitness and um, the amount of time they spend being active. I love the initiative. So we're going to clear a different hurdle now and dive into your leadership. How would you describe your leadership style? Oh, good question. I'm sure I've been asked that in a few interviews over the years. I'm not <laughs> sure I've answered it that well. Um, I'm I'm very collaborative. I'm like my office space is a bit like a team environment in sport, which is a bit of a cliche. But um, my roles inherently, regardless of the position I sit in, because sport is you know we're all 
jumping in, we're under-resourced, is inherently quite operational. So, you know, I'll be doing some of the operational work, but then obviously overseeing the business and, and making sure that the, the business hygiene factors are sorted so the staff don't have to stress about it. But um, I, you know, do a lot of meeting and seeing what people think we should be moving forward in. I, you know, have we have kind of a, a lead on each project that we have at Big Sport, but then there's the rest of the team jump in to help. Um, and I may well be the lead or other staff will be the lead. So we kind of share the, the um, you know, driving particular projects around the team. So, and I like to think that, you know, I'm also a bit of a coach and a teacher at the same time. So trying to, you know, make sure that my team are um, learning enough in the particular role they're in now so they can win the next job. So a bit of a combination of both collaboration and, and, and coaching. So talking about your leadership style, what are the most important values to you or as a leader? So say top three values. Um, I think the top three are probably uh, integrity, teamwork, and for me it's kind of a might not be exactly a value, but it's kind of role modelling. Like I wouldn't expect my staff to do anything that I wouldn't be doing myself. So those three would be the, the, the top three that I would I would lean on most days. So talking about integrity, uh, we all make mistakes and have plenty of opportunities to learn from these lessons. You know, what is one of the most important lessons you have learnt during your career? I think that that's a, probably to paraphrase what you said it's exactly right we do all make mistakes and we probably make them quite often and we need probably the important lesson for me one of my um leaders along the way taught me with you know admit to the mistakes learn from them and move on and i think a lot of the times when you're very busy in sport and people are tired and everyone's working on a big project just um admit to it learn from it um and don't don't avoid admitting to your mistakes because um, that doesn't help the team at all. So that would that would be the big one, really, from my point of view. The people are most important components of any organisation. There's a lot of focus that happens generally on professional development and developing people's skills. But for you as a leader, how do you ensure that your employees' personal development matters just as much as professional development? The question's a tricky one. I mean, as I've alluded to, for your sport, overall inherently under, you know, there was a million more things we could do, but just the day-to-day of running a sport and getting everything happening for your members is a big job in itself. And often there's not a lot of money for professional development, and then there's not time for a lot of time off and work-life balance and those type of things. So I think in the person personal development stakes, it's for my team. What I try to do is link them up with role models that kind of give them a perspective of professional development but also personal development um try and get them if they're they'll have a lot of people coming into sport into sport roles that come straight out of uni so trying to get them to understand what work-life balance is to them because it's not the same for everyone um and then just you know making sure that when the busy times come you're giving people enough time out to kind of collect their thoughts and look after themselves in a kind of wellness perspective um so we don't burn them out uh, which is something that happens a little bit in, in a lot of under-resourced organisations. So athlete welfare and duty of care is a huge priority in sport. But on the other side of the coin, and as we're kind of discussing there, there is we see little support around the health and wellness of coaches and staff as a collective in the sporting industry. And most have very little resources, as you mentioned, around which the sports work under. But what can 
what can we do as a sport, as a collective to ensure that we do focus more time on that health and wellness of our coaches and staff and give them the support that they need, you know, especially when they are in roles which are um, under high pressure and the, and the pressure to really perform when it matters. Yeah, look, I think um, it's vital to have it as a formal part of what you talk to your staff about, not just assume it's going to happen incidentally. Um, because, you know, coaches are inherently, particularly at the high level, very competitive people. Um, and if it's written into some KPIs, that, that is something that they're expected to look after themselves, um, as well as look after their athletes. I think that that would go a long way to making sure it, it actually happens in some way or shape or form. Yeah, because it's easy to fall into that trap of this is my passion and just getting quite narrow focus because you just end up throwing everything at the work that you're doing because you're so passionate about it and you want to ensure that it's delivered um, with great performance as well. And it, it's it's easy to kind of just go forget about the things that you've potentially learned as an athlete along the way. Like we talked earlier about those great assets or great skills that you develop as an athlete. But quite often people forget that in that sporting management or industry sense. I, th I think you're spot on and it, it, that, that passion becomes, you know, it can make people a little bit manic about achieving what they want to achieve but not having the rest to then recover as they would be telling their athletes that, you know, I tell my athletes recovery is more important than the training. But I'm not sure we all live that when we get into our, our corporate life. Um, and it, it is really important for people to be able to rejuvenate and go again and, and keep the effort up along the way to achieve um, some, you know, sometimes some very lofty goals, particularly, you know, top-level coaching. It's interesting. This is something that I've been sort of looking at recently is, is around this space. And as an athlete, yes, we, we do focus, a lot of the training is developed around recovery and there's really strong triggers when you don't get it right. Whereas, say, in the in a corporate or a working world, generally, unless there's a catastrophic event, there isn't a really strong trigger to say, hey, look, your recovery is not good enough. And the body just keeps adapting and adjusting to that. And so it's easy just to go, okay, well, I'm going to work another hour longer or um, I'll, I'll wait two months or another week or whatever to have a day off. And it, the body's adapting so effectively that you don't actually, it doesn't actually catch up to you until you do have some time off. So it's, you know, I think the hardest challenge there is to try and find those triggers that say, you know what, you have to take more time for recovery. Very true. And I think, you know, there's some inherent, you know, operational triggers in terms of leave. You know, you get some coaches, oh, I don't have time to take leave, you know, or some business leaders that have the same thing. It's like, no, you need to set a good role model for your athletes and for your junior juniors or junior coaches that... You know that is important for you to rejuvenate, and then you can um, you can be on top of your game for longer during the year because you've taken that time off. And I just think it's it's got to be watched by management, um, and it's got to be something that that everyone does from the top down. And then that that culture means that people don't think, oh, they're taking time off, but we've got worlds in six months, and they shouldn't be. You know, it becomes a conversation that's normal, and the time off being important rather than being um, being seen as not not reaching your goals or doing your job. I think from a kind of an athlete point of view, it's it's um, quite common that we see, you know, where the 
the coaches throw everything at it and the high performance staff and they actually get to the point where they're drained normally most of the time when they get to the the end of the the pinnacle time of the the year where they need to be in their greatest performance for their athletes and it's quite it's it's interesting to kind of watch how that unfolds in so many um, spaces with inside sport um, and you know they, they just totally they think that everything's about the athlete performance but most of the time it's around the environment around the athlete where it's even more crucial yeah look it's exactly right and I've, you know i've sat in at vis and in national sporting organizations where you can you know that if the coach is not on song the athletes in the time of crisis in the middle of a game or when something's happening with the team or when the lead up doesn't work out as you want to because campaign right up to olympics is a long campaign yeah. they're looking to the coach for that strength and the coach won't have it if they're that tired that they're not functioning at their best so it's it's a matter for you know the ceos for looking after those people or the the head coach or whatever it is just to make sure they know their people well enough to see when they're down and say come on let's let's have a chat and let's have a rest um otherwise you know you tokyo coming looming soon um will not be as successful as people want it to be so what is some advice that you've been given over your sport management career that you would love to go back and share with your students at Wesley College uh, who are looking into a career in sport management? I think some of the stuff I talk about a bit, you know, that people always told me, you know, get out and volunteer, get out and find out what other sports are doing, get out and, you know, talk to the people in the job that you think you might like down the track. You know, all those things about uh, networking and immersing yourself in your sport but also going and checking out what other people are doing I think are still very relevant um, and I think whether you're a coach or you're an administrator I think you know looking at best practice looking at other sports looking at other organizations um, asking people what they do you know one of the things I'd really like to do is a lot more of sending my team out into other organizations just to hang out for a week see what happens um bring stuff back um sometimes you think oh we don't have time for that we've got to make time but i think that networking immersing yourself learning about others um going out and taking time just to catch up with people even if it doesn't feel like it's on your list of kpis um is really really uh some great advice that i you know wanted to continue to to pass on and continue to live by there are a number of competing priorities in people's lives where sport may not play as big a part as it used to. You know, what initiative would you love to see adopted that will ensure people are more active and healthy? Um, I think apart from the phys ed in schools, I think the other thing that we, we need to get right in Australia that's not as good is the active transport, transport to work. So there might be people that don't want to or don't have a chance to join a club and be in that environment. but. Um, everyone travels places and if there's more opportunities to travel um, being active and we've got bike racks on the back of trams and trains and things that you see in in a lot of countries overseas um, I think that would be a step to encourage people to to be more active just in their daily life and I think that would that would help and if people more active and more physical then maybe they'll then join some kind of group and hang out with people to be active more often might, might not be a sporting club it might be something else but i think that would be a start to just encourage people to, to move more we've spoken a lot around helping other people be more active and healthy so how do you lead an active ceo lifestyle 
Yes, probably not. As, I probably um, don't practice what I preach as much as I used to. Um, I uh, find that I, you know, get involved with friends and and do things that are active for our kind of social life. So you kind of, you know, catching up with people but being active at the same time with with limited time available um, in my coaching. So obviously coach and do some of the activities with the athletes, which some is a little bit limited because I'm a hurdles coach, so a little bit careful. I might not be walking too well the next day. Um, but And also just trying to focus on just, you know, knowing if I'm busy and a bit stressed about things at work, going for a walk is the best antidote. So um, just focusing on those little things, not thinking I have to be highly competitive anymore or do anything that that, that, that formalised, but just uh, get moving to kind of clear the mind is, is kind of my focus now. We all know smart people have great answers, but the best people ask great questions. Very true. When was the last time you did something for the first time? Oh, gosh, that's a good question. When was the last time I did something for the first time? Um, probably, and it's a bizarre one because it's nothing to do with my work, but I recently sold my home and it's the first time I've sold a home. And I was think I was more nervous than sitting on the blocks waiting for a hurdle race um, at the auction when everything's unfolding. And that was a first and it was kind of a very daunting because it was one of the few things that was completely out of my control in my life. So that was, um, that was new. <laughs> I like that one. It's very different to the other answers we've had. <laughs> I wouldn't want to do it too often. I can tell you, I don't know how these people do the flipping houses all the time. It would, I think I would, uh, it would give me some kind of a I don't know I'll probably have a heart attack it was very stressful <laughs> and, and, and the sentimental value you've, you, you have attached to that house as well was that kind of part of that very much process? so because um, I've been there for a long time put in a lot of effort into the house a lot of money a lot of effort a lot of life you know life events have happened there so um, you know you can you can see why you get nervous because of that that emotional attachment but um, it is a very interesting process I learnt a lot <laughs> what is the one question that you would love to solve? One question I would love to solve. Um, it's always been interesting to me because my friends are very varied in their um, love of or, you know, attending sports. Some of my friends are not sporty at all, never played sport, never been to sport, never been to the MCG. And I always find it interesting. I, I would love to answer the question that why why have you never been involved in sport? Which is kind of bizarre because it's very selfish of me to assume that everyone would love it like I do. Mm. But um, I'd like to get that question answered. How do you know when you're in a peak state of mind? Um, I think for me, it's when things seem easy. You know, it's a bit like this, the, the sporting skill analogy, you know, the, the the real champions have time, and I think even in the workplace, if you, you know, if you're in that zone, things come easy, things seem easy, you can get across problems um, well if you're in that right state of mind. So it's a matter of trying to find a, a zone, as I would in a kind of physical sense, to to stay in that as much as you can. Um, but it just when you know you come across something new, but it does seem easy because um, if you set yourself up well and you're in the right frame of mind, that that's where you want to be as much of the time as possible. You've given some great insights into the world of sport and leadership. So how can people learn more about what you do and what would be the best way for people to connect with you if they wish to do so? 
Um, probably the best way about what I do in my job is is to jump on our website and get our newsletter and then people can see what, what Vic Sport does in terms of my day-to-day role. But um, I'm always very happy to connect with people on LinkedIn. I'm, I'm not the best social media. My, my marketing comms manager gets frustrated with me. I'm very good at liking things. I'm not very good at posting things. Um, but it gives you, I just think, connecting with people and then, you know, if you end up meeting in person or the odd note to each other or the odd link sending to people, I think, you know, part of my role is I have been very lucky that people have given me great opportunities in sport and supported me in my roles that then enabled me to win the next role. Um, and I now want to do the same for the, the group of kids that are coming through into sport. And it's a lot more competitive and a lot more diverse than it was when I started working in sport 25-odd years ago. Um, so they need help. They need people to, to promote them, sponsor them, push them and educate them along the way. So that's um, I'm always happy to connect with people in, in that function. Lisa, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. I've loved listening to the diverse range of skills and areas you've worked in from education through to that marketing sponsorship space and then into CEOs through a wide variety of different roles, even within the sport, but you can see how each one of them's helped build on top of each other so that the skills that you have now as a CEO of Vic Sport um, is really fruitful and provides really great diversity to the way you think about what you do. I love the way you talked about working in a collaborative and team environment inside your office and it's like, it's like what you are as a coach um, of, as a, of hurdling and athletics and being an athlete when you're younger, you've really brought that into the space of your working environment and, and obviously that's a great comfort for you, so it's something you're used to, but you find really effective to connect people together. The collaboration aspects between the different organizations that all are trying to deliver, you know, sort of healthy, active performance outcomes within that region is quite exciting because you don't always see that. And I think that connect is so important if we are to achieve the overall health and well-being of a nation or, or a community. I love your ability to sort of think about the community being more important than oneself and that your approach is all about how can we get the best out of people, how can we get people involved and how can we drive a better community in the future. So thank you very much for your sharing your courage, your wisdom, your belief and your story with the Active CEO listeners today. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. I appreciate your comments and um, all the best to listeners out there and let's, uh, let's get more people more active more often. That's our goal. This week's Active CEO Wellness Tip is business is the aggregate of humans. Humans are the greatest asset in your company. So you need to look after them and every single day you need to be helping them overcome their limiting beliefs and continually building on their strengths. Make sure they feel worthy to be in your organization. If you don't look after your humans, then your company will struggle. Keep focusing on the asset. How can you grow and evolve it and continually work on it so they really feel part of the work that you're doing? Thank you for listening to an energizing conversation with Lisa Hasker, life education through sport. On episode 57 of the Active CEO podcast, how often do you find yourself saying, it's okay to work another hour or stay up later 
or oh, I'll do my exercise tomorrow. Looking after our health is extremely important as a CEO or leader. When it comes to rest and recovery, once you lose it, it is very difficult to make it up. Are you scheduling in the exercise and recovery into your life or just hoping that it happens? To learn more, please do not hesitate to contact us about breaking the CEO code and breaking the coach code by going to www.nrg2perform.com website. This is the Active CEO podcast where the ordinary don't belong. Join the Active CEO movement by visiting www.nrgtoperform.com. That's nrg2perform.com. Share this podcast on LinkedIn and be sure to tag in NRG to perform. Leave a review on iTunes. Drop us a line with your feedback and questions and connect with us on the NRG to perform Facebook and Instagram pages. Be sure to check out the next Active CEO podcast where the ordinary don't belong.